Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. One of the great American writers is going to summer school. He's going by choice. Juan Felipe Herrera is a former U.S. Poet Laureate, America's Poet. He's in Miami this week to help teachers find creative ways to teach poetry in their classrooms. His mission is to bring creative writing and expression to communities all over the country, especially young students. Juan spent more than two decades as an educator. He's got an elementary school named after him in Fresno, where he was born. He's written more than 30 books, including children's books. Teaching and teaching poetry is in his heart. Juan was born the son of migrant farmers in California. A love of writing made him the first ever Latino U.S. Poet Laureate in 2015. This week, he's speaking to K-12 and community college teachers at a Poetry Teachers Institute. He wants to help them develop new approaches to teaching poetry so they can take that back to their classrooms in the fall. He'll be reading his poetry afterwards tonight at the University of Miami. Maybe we can get him in the mood to read us some poetry and get us in the mood. Bienvenido, Juan el Merenguito Herrera. Muchas gracias. Es un gran placer. Thank you. Don't climb up on me now. Yo sé que tú eres juguetón. You're playful, so we're going to do that for the next hour. That's going to be great. <laughs> no, I, I'll, I'll watch out for the clams. <laughs> las clams. Hay que tener cuidado. Yeah, las, 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 ¿Cómo se llaman las clams? Se llaman que... Ya se me olvidó. Ostiones. Ostiones y... Eh, tienen otro nombre, almejas. Almejas, almejas, almejas is where it's at. Almejas, pero no orejas. No, almejas, pero no orejas. Another <laughs> title for a great poem. It's another one. We're, <laughs> we're cracking them loose right now. That's right. Yeah. Hey, but I think we're doing the work that, like, President Obama assigned you to, right? Which is uh, bring poetry to the country, to all reaches of the country, right? That's true. Fíjate que sí. Uh, right. I went to military uh, high schools, uh, uh, girls only, uh, 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 religious schools and I went to you name it, I am Princeton también I was talking to one of the guys in Princeton estudiante and uh, he was telling me some heavy stories about uh, women trying to get into the physics program hmm. and it was a little difficult it was a little difficult uh, uh, for them to go all out and get their PhDs in that field so you know there's and there's you know other things too, I mean they they weren't all at that level, but they there was a little bit of everything. And beyond that, I estaba también in uh, Nuevo Mexico. And in New Mexico, it was an issue of uh, meeting uh, uh, para los, a group that was had to do with the uh, uh, the survival of the of the of the people. Uh, and they did a lot of legal work for the uh, group, the, for the communities in Santa Fe, and the workers in restaurants and hotels. And they were doing fabulous work. I wasn't expecting that. I thought it was, hey, we invited you. Uh, come on over here and start reading your poetry. No, it was, uh, this is what we do here. And organizers, uh, community activists. And so it was very, it was a great thing to, to be part of. It like gave you, being a poet laureate, gave you like a, this passport <laughs> into all these communities, right? It's a passport into a lot of communities, communities we wouldn't generally be know about, even know about. It was great. I went to bilingual schools, all out, full immersion bilingual schools with little mariachis. Uh, you oh know. man, take us into that that room because you're developing poetry in all these places. You're not just going to these places. You're hearing poetry, and, sing, and performing poetry, and all, and developing poetry in these places. Yeah, that's true. And uh, seeing what the children do and getting inspired by them and the teachers. Uh, yeah, in this case, I saw the mariachis, very young, of course, uh, third, fourth graders. 
perhaps fifth graders, and they were all colors. They were all colors. And I go, how about that? You know, we need to do a, a mariachi for the whole nation so everybody can get together and sing canciones and corridos. Should we start right now? <laughs> we, <laughs> we can start right now. <laughs> a las once de la noche, estábamos desesperados. Nos montaron en un coche para Kansas, mancornados. Wow, what a whole story Ooh. there. Ooh. There's a whole yeah, story there. Yeah, it's uh, being uh, shackled and thrown into a, a, a Border Patrol van. So that's a tough corridito. That is a uh, tough corridito. And it kind of comes to mind porque when I was five years old, I saw that face-to-face, living in a little ranchito en escondido. And my father was, you know, he had all kinds of little jobs like that. Mm-hmm. That's how we stayed alive and farm working too. So he was taking care of the little ranchito. Um, you know, the, the animals and uh, the corn. I helped him plant corn. Perhaps one of my, perhaps the most valued moment I had with the most true deep moment with my father was planting corn together and that was fabulous what was it about that moment well mm-hmm. it, it was both of us we were both doing this and we were both planting corn on into the earth father and son and for me it was incredible because my father rarely had uh, conversations with me uh, he was born in 1882 so it puts you in the time frame of uh, how much fathers and sons, what, what kind of conversations happen between them. Yeah, and the, that warmth that comes from that. And he was uh, of the generation where, you know, the father is more uh, aloof or distant mm-hmm. or his role is to work and uh, the mother's role is to take care of the child, which is what happened. The nurturing. The nurturing. But what happened in this moment at the ranchito was that we started to plant corn together. I go, oh, this feels good, you know. I'm with my father, and we're both planting corn, and and the corn grew like 10 feet a little later on. And, of course, it was a big old spider in the middle of the corn stalks. (laughs) And I was about to go through there. I go, oh, man. I'll let that go through first before me. (laughs) But, like, those moments, like, you can tell there's poetry in those moments. There's poetry. There's so much uh, energy and emotion tied up in that moment. That and and still you haven't told me anything your dad said to you, but rather what you did together. No, there was, there was like I was saying, there was. It's kind of the, the 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 fathers were his in his generation, and they were really more silent. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the language came out, and the communication came out when my mother and myself and my father were in the same uh, little room. Mm. And then he would bring out his harmonica. And he played it. It sounded like a little orchestra. He knew how to play it, so you could hear, you could hear, you could hear the little inner beats of the harmonica, because he, he just played it in a certain way that you could hear a little uh, uh, some of the some of the notes going and the rest of it doing its uh, typical harmonica sound. So it was like a little orchestra. And then he would tell you know chistes. Uh, that he knew from uh, early 1900s. Cuéntame maybe. uno, cuéntame algún chiste que te diga, papá. <laughs> Give me us one of those jokes, man. <laughs> oh, si ven para la radio. Are they, they going to get our FCC license revoked Okay, in here it is. Okay, this is a $10 uh, donation for everyone. <laughs> no, don't believe it. So, <laughs> so uh, oh, okay. There's this three men uh, in a park. And it's a very, very hot day. It's, it's muggy, it's hot, the sun is burning down, and they're getting toasted. But they don't want to admit that they're getting toasted, or they don't want to complain because you know they're, you know, they're tough guys. They're, you know, you know, Schwarzenegger dudes, and so, so <laughs> and they're tough guys. So, but it just happens that one of them, uh, you know, doesn't have any hair. 
but it's, so his scalp is you know is on fire in a sense, and he didn't know how to how to deal with that. You know, I'm like, what am I going to do? I can't tell him my scalp is burning. Oh God! And the second one, you know, he, he had a, a lot of moquito hanging down his nose, and he didn't want to you know wipe his nose because that was going to be very embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> and the third one had a lot of uh, pulgas and chinches jumping out, out inside his shirt and crawling up his ear and scratching his head, <laughs> and he didn't want to scratch, you know, because you know it'll be really foolish to say, "Hey, I got pulgas," you know. Or, you know, there's chinches all over me. I got to scratch my whole body right now. So he didn't want to do that. So so then the, the Calvito, the one that didn't have any hair, he said, I have an idea. I have a really cool idea. So he says, he goes, uh, yeah. he throws his hand up, in the, hand up in the air. Then he slaps his scalp. He goes, I have un caballo. There goes a horse. But he had, he had to, you know. He covered his head. He with covered his head. his head. Oh, my God, there goes a horse. <laughs> so he covered his head. So he was, you know, feeling good now. He didn't mm-hmm. have to say, oh, my head is burning. I'm bald. You know, <laughs> he didn't do any of that. And then the second guy who had a little moquito happening was, you know, coming down in a mm-hmm. little sling there. And he goes, okay, now what am I going to do? Oh, God. Oh, gee, okay. And there he goes. <laughs> he, he takes <laughs> so his hand across it, and, and points across the room. He took his hand across his, his nose and he points. And as he did that, he kind of he kind of whipped his hand and the little moquito went flying. And then he pointed to, <laughs> to the invisible horse. So he felt happy. Right. He was happy. He was in place now. He was a bona fide, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, skeletally correct uh, a man or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next person, uh, like I said, had a lot of uh, cucarachas and everything just jumping all over and him. Bold. Yeah, so what, what was he going to do? So then he says, he says, he said, he said, fue galopiando. He went galloping. He went galloping. He's galloping. So as he was galloping, said he went galloping the horse. He was pressing his elbows to his ribs and scratching and his ribs. Jumping with, around <laughs> and scratching himself. <laughs> he looked like he was doing the cha-cha-cha or something. <laughs> so that was, you know, that was one of the classics right there. And it's like such a, it's such a dad joke. It's such <laughs> it's a, a dad, dad joke. joke. And so like growing up, like your dad clearly knew how to tell a story. My dad was an old Cuban farmer, uh, gr- you know, pl- planting rice in rice paddies, you know, one mm. little plant at a time, six oh, years God. old. Cosita, I mean, tr- difficult work, but what they had were great stories. Great stories. Did you grow up with that, with great stories? I grew up with great stories from my mother and my father. I grew up with great stories, adivinanzas, chistes, proverbs, sayings, uh, 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 wordplay, wordplay. My mother liked to do wordplay. He goes, uh, would you like some chocolate, Juanito? No, I want some chocolate. No, I wouldn't have any chocolate. We have chocolate. Did you say chocolate? I thought you said chocolate. Or chocolate. Which one did you say? No, I said chocolate. So, so we would go like that nonstop. And so like that, you're like, honestly, just here in the few minutes we were warming up, you were just like jumping from one bit to another bit and very quick-witted. And that's what you grew up that's seeing, right. right? So how much did you feel like that really influenced like your idea of being able to communicate, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. Because my mother talked about everything. We also, she also had an album, a photo, you know, uh, brownie camera, a photographs that have little serrated edges mm-hmm. that you then you you paste on. Now uh, we have Instagram to make pictures look like they're old, <laughs> but those that's how they would look. Yeah. Inst- Instagram, right? So you're right. Yeah, you're right. We she had the real brownie camera that made these real photographs mm-hmm. that you take to be developed downtown by the feed store, and then you bring back, bring it back, and then you paste it on this kind of soft feltish. Uh, black uh, uh, construction paper, uh-huh. almost, and then you have this red uh, 
Cress or Woolworth's album. And she happened to have all the photos that my abuelita, Juana, had received from the children, of course, as they grew up. Right. And my tios went uh, to the army in Fort Bliss, uh, right next to El Paso. That's mm-hmm. how they kind of helped. That kind of helped bring my mother and my abuelita, Juana, uh, into Texas because they were in the army. I think that helped a bit. I, I never got the details. So they, they were in Juarez, sleeping on bricks after journeying from Mexico City. During the Mexican Revolution, to top it off, you go, hey, there goes Pancho Villa. But during the Mexican Revolution, they wow. got in a train and then got out in Juarez and got a little, uh, I think, in uh, Segundo Barrio, Second Ward, which is still there. And I, they must have got a little tiny, I don't know how big, it was half an inch big apartment, uh, <laughs> on 3rd and Campbell. La Tercera, La Tercera y La Campbell. Tercera y Campbell. And that's where they were. But then the, the army, uh, uh, probably in one way or another, uh, made that possible. I don't know. It was kind of easy to cross the border too. It was kind of easy. My and, and this yeah. is this is like the storytelling, like this, like these kinds of stories. That's what you have tried to bring out into communities, right? Like that's yeah. that's what you want people to reach into that treasure trove, into their their father's jokes, their mother's <laughs> dicharachos, the history of abuelitas, albums, and use that to tell stories and poetry. Yeah, it's you. You know, all all those stories are you. And that's the voice of your mother, the voice of your father, the voice of your grandfather, the voice of your grand uh, grandmother, and their their life, their 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 visions, their terrains, uh, uh, their worlds and landscapes. Imagínate, you're not just getting a story; you're getting an entire uh, life landscape with uh, with places and people, uh, journeys, experiences, surprises, and materials that we don't see, we don't know. And we'll never see, but we can know it a bit through the stories, like you said. So I grew up with, with truckloads of that. Our guest today is Juan Felipe Herrera. He's a poet, activist, and former U.S. Poet Laureate. He's in Miami helping poetry teachers create their lesson plans. Entonces, Merenguito, cuéntame, tell me, tell me a little bit about how poetry came into your life. Because I see how you're trying to bring it into kids' lives, and you spent you know, so much of your career doing that. How did it first come into your life? Well, uh, like we were saying earlier, uh, my mother's stories and uh, riddles. Fui al mercado, compré bellas, vine a la casa y lloré con ellas. And I went to the marketplace, I bought beautifuls, I came home and I cried with them. I said, what on earth is that? She goes, a ver, you know, hay que resolverla. Can you figure that out? Uh, how does it go again? Fui al mercado, compré bellas, bellas, vine a la casa, came home. Y lloré con ellas, bellas ellas. Lloré. Oh, I cried. Oh, onion, cebolla. That's it. That's that's the hidden uh, symbol in there. Right. That's the adivan, uh, uh, adivinanza. adivinanzas, right, that I grew up with some of those too. Like, <laughs> mientras más cerca, más lejos. Mientras más lejos, yeah. más cerca. ¿Qué cosa es? La cerca. That's uh, it. Yeah. So that, that idea yeah. of, like, you guys grew up with, you grew up with poetry in your life. Uh, yeah. So, but when did it become formal? Like, I imagine, you know, your your parents were migrant farmers, people who worked, sc- scrapped, right, to, scrapped. to make a living. That's right. And you get to write for a living. Uh, I get and, to write. I, and, 
I scratch paper. In scratch paper, como dice my cousin, goes, you push buttons for a living now because I write <laughs> on my computer. Uh, but tell me about that, like that that transition of, you know, growing up in a place where it was so, like you said, working, you were you were working alongside them in the fields in a lot of cases, right? When you were little? I, I was probably goofing around in mm-hmm. the fields. Right. I was goofing around or I was uh, watering the, the, the ranchito, mm-hmm. feeding the pigs, running from the rooster. <laughs> that was the mayor of the whole ranch. Uh, you don't want the, the rooster was the mayor. <laughs> he the was the mayor, <laughs> but they were they were. It was important for them for you to go to school. It was important. Oh yeah, it was important. I don't know how it happened, but one day I was in second grade in San Diego, in Logan Heights, at Burbank Elementary, and there's a whole story on how we got there. But we got there, coming down from the mountains, because uh, we had gone up from the, we, the ranchitos and the roadside uh, life to the top of. Uh, uh, Ramona Mountain, and uh, so we did that. We lived there for a little bit, and then my father was working, and my mother was doing her best. And then it was time to go. My father always was, "Ya los vamos, we're going. Ya los vamos, it's time to go. Time to go. We're going to move again." I go. My mother would go, "Oh, otra vez, Felipe. Here we go again. We're going to move again." Well, Juanito, we're re- we're leaving tomorrow. Okay. So then we went to San Diego, went to Logan Heights Barrio. Why did your Why did your dad? Why was it important for him to move so much? Is it because you were following the crop kind of thing, or was it was he a restless kind of soul? I think he was a bit restless. Mm. He was restless, and that was his whole childhood was leaving home in uh, a little town in Chihuahua called uh, El Mulato. And El Mulato, I I found out it's run it's part it's a municipio of a larger city called Ojinaga. And Ojinaga is where uh, Pancho Villa comes from. Mm. Imagine that in Chihuahua. Yeah, Pancho Villa roots, yeah. Ahí lo tienes. So at a very young age, he left he left El Molato and left Chihuahua and hopped on a train and uh, landed in Denver, Colorado. And he was uh, 14 years old. So since he was 14, he was jumping around, moving, getting a job, working for ranchers. Whatever they offered him, he would do. And eventually he came back to California and throughout Texas, working in the fields, working on highways, working on wells, working uh, right with ranchers again. And So a guy that's definitely used to moving around. Moving, and, moving, And then moving. here you are in the second grade and you finally land and he said, oh, we're moving again, but I don't know, did you, you stayed or did you? We're moving again. And that's when we went from Ramona down the mountain to San Diego, Logan Heights. And... Uh, so we just kept. I was going to say something there, but you know, I blew it. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so uh, sometimes you lose I, the joke, but you come I, back to another another I, one. Better. I come back to another one. So, but it's not, oh, I guess what I was going to say is that all this happened through stages. Mm. You know, not fully marked and you know outlined, but of course, right? Uh, being uh, raised early uh, with, by uh, by my mother, telling me stories and 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 uh, riddles and sayings and repetitions and singing together. Uh, once I hit high school, she says, why don't you buy a, a, a guitar? Uh, you, you look a little lonely, you know. It looks like uh, you need a guitar. You need a partner. <laughs> Just get a guitar. It'll be good for you. And it was a good time because that was a folk song movement years, the 60s. And by then it must have been 1965-ish or 66. What were you listening to? Oh, you name it. Of course, the classics, uh, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan yeah. uh, Joan Baez, and uh, Woody Guthrie, and Arlo Guthrie, mm-hmm. and the whole the whole team out there, Tom Rush, and Peter, Paul, and Mary, 
and it was a big list of, of folk singers. Everybody in school had a little had a guitar. You know, every teenager in that in that decade had a guitar, one way or another. Everybody wanted to be a guitar hero. Yeah, you wanted Bob right. Dylan. Oh, I want to sing like Bob Dylan, and and I'm a guitar hero. And it felt good to have that guitar strapped on your back. It felt good to bring it out and tune the strings, and it felt good to strum it, and to learn. All you need is three little chords. <laughs> and that's it. A C, a G, a C, uh, an F, a G, a G sharp. And uh, they're back to sea, and you're home free with a big song. Listo, do you still play? Listones, fíjate, I have I have a a great guitar in my little uh, uh, room at uh, at home, and uh, it's a it's a Hummingbird 1969 Mark uh, Gibson. Oh, and, nice! And the reason I got that one is because I had one before, and. Uh, Early 1971, for ex- I had it. I had it in high school. I bought it for 50 bucks, and then uh, by 1971, I was doing teatro. I got involved with teatro de la calle, teatro estudiantil, uh, political theater, street theater. At school. At school. And, oh, so you're and doing theater. Com- you're learning music. You're picking up chords. Yeah. And, and did writing come into that point? Writing comes into that point because you're gonna write a song, and for the for the play. Uh, you're probably going to invent it on the spot and assign roles to your your compadres, comadres, your your friends from school, and you're going to just take it from there. Did you stand? Did you stand out as the writer among your group of friends? Like they were like Juan Felipe, escribe no algo, write something for <laughs> us, you know, or or like the, where did you fit in that role? Were you immediately the one that was the writer, the creative in that way? I was probably the, immediately that that guy. Yeah. Uh, but I was more the uh, the organizer and. Uh, idea person, and then uh, the, my friends they would take the roles. I don't know. I didn't jump into a role. I, it could have been fun, a lot of fun, but I wanted to give them a role for them, and I come up with a story, and then they take off from there. That's very selfless. That's a very selfless <laughs> role for the guy that bought the guitar for fifty bucks to to impress the girls, right? Uh, it happens. <laughs> it, it can happen. And did that. That idea of organization, because there's the, there is some activism in your background, right? Like yeah. did that that idea of someone who brings people together for yeah. this common purpose, right? That is that where that grew into that grew into something from there. Yeah, that's a, that's a new that's right. That's a new chapter, right? Mm-hmm. The chapter was childhood chapter of a lot of language with my mother and stories and corridos, and then uh, right. And the second chapter actually was in middle school. In middle school, I hit I hit a dead end. And, and wh- the, why was that? Well, because. Uh, I had wanted to be in band, so I was in the music class. It, it was an amazing class. It was what Sibelius, Mozart, uh, Beethoven, uh, uh, Mendelssohn, and then the great violinist uh, Heifetz and Isaac Isaac Stern, mm. and all that was coming at me. I really loved it. I wanted to be in the band. I wanted to play the saxophone, and then uh, Mr. Schuster, the teacher, said, "I want you to be in the band next year." I go, "Oh man, that's my dream come true," and then. I and then he asked me a question later, either a little bit before or the, the next, the following days. He said, what are you? What are you? Mm. And uh, I, di- I didn't know what he, was, what he said, what he meant, what it meant. I kind of figured out he wanted to know if I was Mexicano or, or what. It was a big question to this very day, right? Yeah, how many ways can you answer that question? Yeah, we could be a, here all day, right? We'll be here all day. And so I said, uh, Hawaiian. Because <laughs> I had been, I had just returned from San Francisco. I went to school in San Francisco, uh, 16th, and, 16th and Mission. 
and to Patrick Elementary, Patrick Henry, and I went to Marshall Elementary. Wow, your parents did move around a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because my dad would take off. Yeah. And then mom said, well, what are we doing here by ourselves? So let's go to San Francisco. You have tios and primos and primas. Wow. So there'd be family in San Francisco waiting for us, which is what she wanted me to have. And she wanted to, you know, have a a nice warm nest with familia. Oh, that must have been tough for her. Did you have brothers and sisters, or just uh, no, you? Didn't have brothers and sisters. Wow, so it was just the two of you when your when dad just, left. Just the two of us, yeah. And he would leave for a year. <laughs> Seven Tava. Wow. He would take off, and that was a year, 1958. That was a total solid year. It was a great year. It yeah, was a great it year. It was a great year. Wow. Not because of my dad, but because I was in San Francisco with all its incredible uh, possibilities. Uh, the movies were were an interesting thing. You go to the movies in the 50s in San Francisco, they would have uh, spinning wheels at the intermission, and you would have a stub from uh, your ticket. And if they called your number, you'd win whatever number came up on the wheel. And and that number, you'd get it in silver dollars. And they would come rustling down the aisle, go bang. And we won. We won one. He goes, hey, we got it, Ma. Mama, you got numbers. And then the, the woman came running down with a with a steel pail or a tin pail. She was... One silver dollar, bang. Two silver dollar, bang, 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 bang. So we won six silver dollars, and they would pass the pail across through the aisle, <laughs> then you get your six silver dollars. So that's that's the kind of San Francisco it was. And then you go down market, and you could buy a, a little furry make-believe rat that you tie to your belt with a hair, and you move your hands. You put the little rat on your hand and move your hands. It looked like the rat was moving around by itself. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest today is Juan Felipe Herrera. He's a poet, activist, and former U.S. Poet Laureate. He's in town to teach teachers on how they can better bring poetry into their classrooms. And I'm curious about, you know, we were talking about how there is this, you, you have to write, embrace who you are to tell the poetry honestly from yourself. But you were talking about this time where you were asked, "What are you?" Yeah. And the metaphor, you know, the the sense like, and you said, "I'm Hawaiian." But so there was like a, you said that there was like like a little bit of embarrassment maybe of saying that you were Mexican for some reason. Yeah, I got stuck. I mm. got stuck, you know, because uh, being a Latino, and those years was, uh, uh, there was a lot of friction because uh, our our communities were still segregated in many places. Mm. Like in Logan Heights, I asked Josie Talamantes, who's uh, a great organizer in uh, for Chicano Park in San Diego, California. I said, Josie, I don't understand why we why we only moved to Logan Heights because my father moved, had us move here. She goes, Juan Felipe, don't you know it was segregated? It was segregated. So all those things, perhaps just unconsciously or or symbolically, uh, more or less, I, I didn't think about it in that way specifically. But yeah, I, I had a hard time saying Mexicano. So I said Hawaiian because I had come from San Francisco. had a lot of Hawaiian friends, Filipino right. friends. So I said, I'm going to go for a Hawaiian. <laughs> but then I knew immediately that uh, that, that, that didn't feel good. I didn't feel good. I go, uh, I'm going to have to do something here. I'm going to have to repair this whole thing. <laughs> you had to start from scratch with that teacher. I'm going to have to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. What I'm going to do is I'm not going to be in band. Uh, I want to be, that was my dream. I even put $5 down on a tenor sax at Pawn Shop Row in San Diego. But I'm not going to do it. 
I want to do it, but that's not going to happen. I'm going because I'm going to hide behind the saxophone. That's how I felt about myself mm. that I was hiding, that I wasn't saying what I really wanted to say, what was really true. And I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to be paranoid. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to get all shaken when the teacher's coming straight at me and is going to ask me for a question to answer a particular or to work on something in front of the whole the whole class. Mm. I said, that's not going to happen anymore. So I want to take a class that a class I would never take, but now I'm going to take it, which is going to make me say what I got to say in front of everybody. And it was choir. Wow. So I took choir, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. Juan Felipe, that's the self-awareness to do that at that <laughs> age. I mean, are you looking back and seeing that? Or even then you knew that like you wanted to develop yeah. yourself as a I, I, your voice. Yeah, I hit like I said I hit a uh, a closed wall. Wow. And that was it. What are you? I go Hawaiian. That was fine, but there was a lot of friction there. I go I don't want to I don't want to be like this anymore. Mm. I want to have to break out and the only way I'm going to break out is if I take choir and forget about the saxophone. I'm going to hide behind the saxophone. I don't want to hide. I want to be straight out right to the audience and say it and not be afraid. I didn't know I was going to have an audience either. I just thought I was going to be in a choir. I never thought of an audience. I didn't know it came with an audience. And I didn't know it came with a stage. And I didn't know it came with small groups and bigger groups of singers. So that's what I put myself through for four to five years. It, I, I find it really interesting that always, when we have these conversations with poets, there's always that with that back and forth with music like there's this there's this yin and yang with music is it music is it poetry is it poetry is it music you know and and it seems like you kind of straddled both those worlds a little bit you're trying to find your expression in both of those that is true that is true yeah the harmonica my father's harmonica the guitar the saxophone the singing you know because that's what you do in a choir so I began to sing and I had to be tested in front of everybody by myself as a singer in front of the whole class the baritones tenors alto sopranos they were standing still very happy because they didn't get called on but it was my turn and the pianist had to hit the hit the melody of the line and i had to hit those same notes out loud in front of the whole uh <laughs> cuckoo head <laughs> all the cuckoo heads all the right all these guys ready to make fun of you <laughs> exactly. in, the, from your, in your high school class or whatever so that was one Middle big school. that was one big move and when I hit UCLA in 67, I, t- I kicked it up another notch. I said, this is still not working out. I want to get on the free free speech uh, mound uh, in Kirkhoff Plaza, which is, has an open area for free speech. Mm-hmm. So I want to get up there, and I'm going to read a poem up there. And I'm just going to have to do it. There's no way out. I'm going to have to do it. I'm st- I still got a ways to go. Because uh, uh, Mr. Her- Ezra Harrison Maxwell, my choir teacher, who's a great guy, Great guy, He's, it would it would come right by you with his ear literally close to your nose, and he would listen to your voice. He goes, you know, Juan, you got a really good voice, but uh, you're only using one third of it. Hmm. I go, oh man, after five years, I'm only using one third. All right, all right, all right. So then I got into the free speech thing. I would have to get up there on that speech, free speech mound, and put out a poem right there. It's not going to be a choir. There's no audience necessarily. I'm just going to have to belt it out from the free speech you know, area. Use that as a form to, de- to further develop your voice. Yeah. I wow, both to, physically I, and, and kind of... Uh, 
yeah. metaphorically, right? I had to just get out. I had to just break break out, and my ribs popping out of my teeth. I just had to do it. So I got up there. Then I had this brilliant, not so brilliant idea. I thought if I screamed the poem, people wouldn't hear my nerve, nervous voice jittering and jattering. And uh, so, but if you do that, if you scream out your poem, you're going to get a Mickey Mouse voice because it'll start. You'll start squeaking. So I had to learn all those little. I had to go through all those little rings of fire until uh, I could actually get up there. Do you remember the poem that you screamed? <laughs> no, it was probably something with blue chips. I wrote a story, that, I mean, a poem that had blue chips in it. It was wrote, your own poem. Yeah. I wrote another one that, uh, let's see, it was about Peru, uh, the the movement in Peru. I, I got into Peru. You were really, your stuff was political. It was social commentary right yeah, away. Yeah, it was social commentary. And uh, so, so that's where I was. But I started squeaking, so then I put a, a jazz band together, a little jazz group, like spoken word with jazz. So I, my friends, you know, hey, Roberto, hey, man, let's do something together on the on the steps, okay? On uh, Royce Hall steps, right outside Haynes Hall, the anthropology department, okay? Okay, I'll bring it, yeah, bring my string bass. So that was Roberto. He played with Charles Lloyd after a while. Wow. So he was really good. He was great. And then, Ruben, can you bring your saxophone? Come on, man, we can do it. Oh, yeah, sure, Juan. So he brought his saxophone. He's a Native American guy with saxophone. And Billy, yeah. Hey, Billy, bring your congas, man. Let's put, let's let's get it going. So Billy Lou, who was Chinese Chicano, he brought his conga set. All right, okay, let's do it now. So then I, I did jazz poetry on the steps, and that felt better than squeaking on a on the free speech mom. <laughs> you were developing your voice in a lot of different ways, right? And your, your form of expression. What a tremendous band. So that's... that's a, tri- are, a tribe called Merenguitos. That's what we're going to call it. <laughs> those are Merenguitos. And uh, so that's 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 uh, some of the steps I took to get rolling and get going. When did, when did it become important to you to see that poetry, the poetry that you grew up naturally in your house, that you're... That you're mother and father unwittingly, you know, shared with you. When did that, number one, when did it become formalized for you, the idea of like, oh, poetry is a formalized thing that I can, it's an art form that I can focus in on and I can teach others. Yeah, well, the teaching part uh, actually comes later. The mm-hmm. teaching comes later because uh, what was the, uh, the teaching comes uh, probably just the, just doing it. It's like teaching it. Uh, but teaching like creative writing and poetry and Chicano lit, Latino lit, uh, uh, and on, uh, that that takes place. Um, that takes place in probably in 1988, when I head to Iowa and uh, I applied to the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, which is like where so many great writers over the years, like yourself, have, have come it's, through that workshop. Yeah, it's a biggie, but I didn't even know what a workshop was. <laughs> so I asked George Barlow, who said, "Why don't you come with me to Iowa? We're going to Iowa, Juan. You know, you, you're done with the year here at De Anza Community College at Cupertino. So why don't you just come with me? Let's take off, and we'll go to Iowa. You apply, you get in, and it'll be it'll be gravy." I go, "Hey, that's not that's a good idea." So what do you do in a workshop? Oh, you sit around in a circle, and you read poems. People talk about them, and that's all you do. That's all you do. <laughs> oh man, I can do that. Sign me up. <laughs> so, so then I went there, and I got in, and so that's when it turns into uh, learning about this thing called poetry, mm. and the the other thing called American uh, poets. 
I don't know any American poets, maybe, maybe one, I don't remember anyone, and then, but I knew more of the Latin American poets and the European poets, which really, you know, really got me rolling. You know, the surrealists. I just love the surrealist uh, poets. <laughs> they matched my brain. Uh, so I knew those those writers, but I didn't know uh, any, uh, uh, they would say, uh, we have a poem today by uh, Elizabeth Bishop. I, I said, I, I have no idea, I'm Elizabeth Bishop. Well, we're also going to have one uh, a reading, a reading regarding uh, Richard Hugo. Oh, well, I'll be here to listen. I don't know about Richard Hugo, John Logan, that's, oh God, or John Berryman, oh gosh. I, you I you learned all that you still had to learn, right? I did. Yeah. So I learned the the United States poets. And uh, and then little by little, the more people I met, they became mentors. Uh, so when I went to Stanford, uh, I met Francisco Larcón on day one. Wow. On day one, he was at the graduation orientation, and I was at the grad orientation at Casa de la Raza or something like that in Stanford. They have a, a little casita, you know. And so he looks at me, and I look at him, and I go, hey, Ah, hey man, uh, Juan Felipe, how much? Oh, I'm Francisco, Francisco Alarcón. And he was into Latin American uh, literature, hardcore, deep, deep. All the books he had read, sideways, backwards, and forwards. So he started talking about Gabriel García Márquez, Julio Cortázar, Jorge uh, Amado, uh, Luis de Camoes, on and on. I go, oh man. So then I would pick up on those writers, uh, Neruda, Vallejo, and, and then I picked my own little surrealist, uh, you know, lunch lunch basket and city lights in North Beach. I get my little surrealist ba- basket, and Francisco gave me the the hit hardcore guys, uh, Cortázar, Julio Cortázar, amazing, amazing writer. And these, as you're reading God. new poetry and stuff, it's just, in you, it's bringing more and more out, because you've written something like 30, 30 books across genres. 30 books. Over the years, like, that is that is prolific. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like that. Yeah, that's how you do it. You get to a point where all you do is write, and then uh, then you got to start balancing your life. You know, I do the writing, but I I do you know have a familia. And by the way, I'm here on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you have and you have. I'm curious that you know your parents were so formative in your exposure to poetry, and you were an only child. But yeah. you, but you now you have you have several kids, right? And several kids and. How does poetry, do you bring poetry into their lives also? or uh, They have a whole different life, you know. <laughs> they're not out on the farm uh, planting corn with their dad. Necessarily. They're not on the farm planting corn with their dad. Uh, How are you different as a dad? I'm pretty much the same. Huh. Yeah, pretty much the same. Uh, I like to have conversations. I like to talk about all kinds of things. But I, I can be a blabbermouth also. But I do like to have conversations. I mean, different from your dad. Well, that's what I mean. He oh. didn't, we didn't have oh, any conversations, right? But so, but they're uh, they're busy. Mm. They're going to work. Uh, they're not in, that interested in uh, poetry. Uh, but when uh, they have gone as little kids, or Robert, he goes, you know, can you? Why don't you do? Uh, uh, are you doing that new American thing? Can you, why don't you do that one? Oh yeah, okay, that's a good idea. I'll do that one. That was a really. What is that? Are you doing that new American thing? You know that thing about coming out all the way out, about telling her, telling him, telling us that we must kill the revolutionary soul? Woo. So it's a long piece. Right. But it has a lot of rhythms to it. Yeah. And a lot of good little things, good little joyitas in it, you know, little jewels in it. Uh, 
But he liked that one at an early age, like six years old. Can you do that one? Are you doing an American thing? And sometimes when I was doing teatro, he would say, ah, oh, you blew the line. You, you forgot <laughs> to say tamales. <laughs> you forgot was after tamales. This was at Teatro Campesino in San Luis, um, and, uh, the little town down there, uh, San Juan Bautista. Mm. And I was in a show that he put together with uh, 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 Slick Rick Salinas and uh, a couple more actors, uh, Ruben uh, Garfias. And uh, so my role was the father in, I think, in Soldado Raso. I think that's that's the one, which is a really cool play about Vietnam. The son goes to Vietnam. It feels like you're still sitting at the steps of the <laughs> of the anthropology school <laughs> at UCLA, getting your friends together to recite poetry and play music. <laughs> Probably, yeah. I was yeah. always doing that. I still do that. On a bigger stage. Yeah, I still do that. So speaking of bigger stages, yeah. one day out of the blue, you're, you get the note that they want you to be the U.S. Poet Laureate. That is true. That is true. It was a call from... That's uh, a serious call. That's a serious call. You, and that's how it happens. You get a serious call. Says, uh, I said, can you be in your office on the 21st of, February, of May? Yeah, but it's like two weeks ahead. I go, you know, just get, you know, just go to your office and be, you know, aware uh, of, uh, you know, the phone may ring, but uh, just, just be there, okay, Juan? Okay, I'll be there. I was teaching at Seattle, uh, University of Seattle at that time. So there I was in the office. And it goes ringing. I pick it up. Oh, is this Juan Felipe Herrera? I go, yes. Uh, well, hold on, hold on. Uh, Dr. Billington would like to talk to you, the head librarian of the Library of Congress. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, oh, okay. Wow, okay. And then, you know, uh, Dr. Billington comes on. He goes, oh, oh, hi, Mr. Herrera. Oh, we're really happy about you. We've been reading your poetry. Go, oh, thank you very much. And we really think highly of it. Oh, thank you, you know, thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, we really think that uh, you, you, you know, you envelop the, the American, uh, you know, uh, life and uh, spirit, and uh, you know, you really, we, we're really pleased with what you write about, who you write for, and. Uh, however, uh, I just have another question for you. Uh, oh yes, yes, Dr. Billington, would you consider uh, being the, our next poet laureate of the United States? I go yes, Dr. Billington. I would definitely consider that. <laughs> <laughs> And the next thing you know, I'm in the office at the Library of Congress, the Laureate office. Amazing. Uh, and so those two years that you were Poet Laureate, yeah. talk to me about, that's similar to what you're doing in Miami this week, right? Is like you're you're bringing poetry to a lot of different corners and, and figuring out ways to bring it into curriculums and having it be part of a conversation, right? Yes. Uh, it depends on what the people are interested in, but mm. you're right. That's what happens. So I visited schools, elementary schools, private schools, uh, military schools, uh, high school, military high schools. The Merenguito Passport. The Merenguito Passport. Yeah. I could definitely get in. Yeah. I even wrote uh, poems for uh, the security guards because one time one of them was trying to write a letter, a Valentine's letter. He goes, God, I'm having a hard time. Man. I go, uh, hey, don't worry about it. I, I, I can write you a poem and you, know, you can fix it up if you want to. You really? Yeah, just... Uh, Shall I do that for you? Yeah, that'd be great. So then I came back the next day. I gave him a, a romantic Valentine's poem that he could... That is amazing. <laughs> did he give it to his significant yeah, other? Yeah, he did. I said, how did that go? He goes, oh, man, it was just great. It just <laughs> really good. He goes, thank you. <laughs> I hope they have that frame somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that happened with Larry King. In what way? What do you mean? 
Well, Larry King invited me to his show. Uh, he had his own studio. Juan Felipe, will you write me a poem? <laughs> uh, it had a surprise to it. It had a little ribbon that said surprise. Uh, so it kind of started uh, like this. He goes, uh, well, we understand. He said this because he wanted me to talk about the migrant uh, political situation. Mm. And this is how he started it. He goes, well, we understand that I'm not supposed to ask you any questions uh about uh, migrant issues, immigration issues, which was true. You know, I'm I'm definitely a Library of Congress guy, but I'm not really. Uh, it's not going to be a the most uh, interesting thing if I start being very political mm. uh, in big shows, and you know, kind of yeah, you know, we got to change the government and you know the president. You know that <laughs> that that would make it a little. While you're putting Lori in, <laughs> that'd be interesting. <laughs> it would make it a little too hot, you know. So he said, so I understand, you know, I cannot ask you those kind of questions. He was trying to dig it out of me, those kind of questions, uh, Juan. I go, you're right, uh, Larry, you're right. Uh, you, if I did that, I would be selling pencils on the street. And then, then we went to a natural conversation, and then he came back and, and he bit it. He, I bit the hook, I bit the bait. <laughs> he came back and he says, well, you know, there's a lot of problems with aliens coming across the border. <laughs> Ah oh, man, that's a guy putting a chili in my eyeball <laughs> and in my nose. You're like, oh, I can't let it stand. Okay, you, you got know. me. You okay, got me, Larry. Okay. Okay, I have to roll up your sleeves. <laughs> roll up my sleeves. I don't know if I'm almost right there in the middle of the studio. <laughs> what did you tell him? I said, uh, oh, about that one? Yeah, I was, I was going to get to something else, but right about that one. I said, Larry, 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 Larry. Oh, uh, look, these are human beings that travel thousands of miles. And they're coming from places where they, their families have been killed, shot, abused, and uh, taken advantage of in one way or another. I mean, I mean the real thing. And then they take off and travel and walk and travel and walk and get abused by the coyotes and they travel and walk and survive and children and babies and mothers and fathers. And they have all the right to cross this border. They're human beings. They suffer. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Oh, by the way, uh, now that we're about to end, end the show, uh, I, I understand that uh, you have a poem for me. I go, oh, no. He said, I understand you're going to read a poem for us. I said, no, Larry. I'm going to read a poem for you because I had a poem prepared for him. <laughs> and there was one show where he had uh, Marlon Brando and they were really buddy or kissing each other, having a great time in the good old days. And I was really, I was really moved by by that show. And I, I'm a Marlo, Marlon Brando fan for since I was a kid, especially One Eye Jacks. And uh, so, so, so I wrote a poem about that. And it was called Larry King sees the vision through the television, because I saw him as a person that knew knew the person he's interviewing immediately. He's that kind of guy. He could immediately know who you are and value who you are, and then ask you questions that matched all that. That you know that that were were you actually? The questions he would ask were questions that were part of you, and he knew that person immediately just by all those years of being a, a, a newsman. Well, hopefully, the next time that we have you on, you'll have a poem for me, and we can go from there. <laughs> the merenguito. That's right. Juan Felipe, thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank you. Muchas our, gracias. Our guest today was Juan Felipe Herrera. 
He's a Chicano poet, activist, and former U.S. Poet Laureate. He's in town for a Summer Poetry Teachers Institute hosted by O Miami and the Poetry Foundation. But to us, he'll always be El Merenguito. <laughs> Thank you. And that's Sundown for Thursday, July 13th. Leslie Olay Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Laena is our producer and social media editor. Helen Acevedo helped produce the show. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio and Sundial's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, creating diversity in public art was a goal for Karen Bowman. It's why she started Street Art Revolution. She joins us. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. WLRN Public Media.